school happen here today if you want to come to the front. Also, if there's any adults I want to see, because you might not be able to see from the back. Also, I'm going to put my goggles on until I really need them. Okay, I'm going to need you guys to back up just a smidge. We're going to do something interesting here. I don't know if you can tell from my outfit, but I am a scientist. I've studied long and hard to do this here for you today. There's zero chance of failure. It's going to be great. Okay. Now, you're going to need to be able to see this. Well, no, I'm going to put something in there so you guys can see. Oh, I need my notebook. My science notebook. One second. Kyle, can you grab my notebook from in my purse? I'm going to need some notes because this is very complex. All right, welcome here, you guys. I was a little concerned this morning when I saw how nice it was outside that you were all going to convince your parents to stay at home and play outside, and then there'd be no one to come and watch my special science experiment. Mm-hmm. Then I could do it for all the adults? Yeah, that's true. I could, But, you know, I find kids tend to be much more interested in these sorts of things. The adults get all caught up in thinking about how it works and what happened and... It becomes much less exciting when you know the process behind it. All right. So, have you guys noticed a bit of a theme in the songs this morning? No? I actually didn't know there was going to be until I showed up this morning. And I think it's going to connect kind of well. We've sang a lot of songs about God's love for us. Actually, often in church, I think, we talk about God's love for us. Would you agree? It's kind, of, it's kind of very central to what we believe. God loves us all so much. Now, quick question. Is there anything that you can do that will make God love you less? No? Like, but what if you hit your brother or sister? Then God will love you less, right? No? Wow! Is there, oh, I know. But are there, there are things that you could do to make God love you more. No? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you would go and you would give your mom a big hug and you'd say, oh, mom, we're going to be perfect for you this afternoon. You go take a nap. We'll clean the house. Then God would love you more, right? No? My goodness, you guys are smart. Although, wouldn't that be fun? All right. You're right. God, nothing we can do will make God love us any less than he does. And nothing we can do will make him love him any more because he loves us way more than we can even understand. He loves us more than your mom and dad love you, more than your grandma and grandpa love you, more than your aunties love you. It's hard to imagine, but it is possible. All right. God loves us so much. Now, the problem is, and I don't know if you guys ever feel this way, I sometimes struggle. I know that God loves me. But at least that's what everyone says. But I have a really hard time feeling like God loves me. Like sometimes I just kind of feel like empty. Maybe you guys don't feel that way. And that's awesome. Maybe at some point in your life you will. So we're going to say that this bottle, which is essentially empty, is us. You, me. Sometimes even though it's true that God loves us, we don't feel it. So what are some things... We're going to say that this cup here full of red liquid is like God is God's love. And it's red because 
it can remind us of God's, Jesus' blood, when he died on the cross to forgive us because he loved us so much. So what are some things that we can do or read about to kind of remind us that God really does love us actually so much? One of the first things is that Jesus died for us on the cross. And when I think about that, when I sit and think, wow, Jesus died for me, even though I do a lot of things that maybe aren't very good, or sometimes I make mistakes, like Jesus died for me and for you because that's how much he loves us. So then... Don't worry, I'll warn you when something exciting is happening. So then I start to fill up, feel a little bit more love, feeling a little bit more full of love. What's another thing? Another thing is that I sometimes read in my Bible that God is my father. Have you guys ever read that in your Bibles or in your Bible stories? Maybe you've talked about it in Sunday school. God is our father, and he loves us so much. He loves us even more than our father. Our dads here on earth or our grandpas can love us. He loves us like a father. We are his children and he takes care of us because he is our father. And then I start to feel even more love filling up inside of me. A third thing that I read in the Bible the other day is that God will never, ever leave me. Ever. Never. I can run as fast as I can, which is not actually very fast, but I can try super, super hard and run and run and run and run, and God's just going to stick with me. Or I can climb a super duper tall tree, also not one of my strong points, but God's going to stay with me. Or have you guys ever tried to dig a hole to China through the sand in the ground? I could dig a super, super, super deep hole and go way down into the hole and God is still going to be with me. He will never, ever leave me. And when I think about that, I feel so, so much love. And I don't just know that he loves me. I start to feel it inside. And that's just a really good feeling. So now we're kind of filling up with God's love here which is just a wonderful feeling. I'm going to need you to back up a little bit, okay? Because we want everyone to see and also exciting things are going to happen. Now, does any of you know what the greatest commandment is? It's actually, Titan, do you have a guess? To believe in God? Yep, that's a good one. It is. Jesus was asked what the most important commandment was, and it was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and... What's the second thing? Yes, to love your neighbor as yourself. So now that we're kind of filling up with God's love, sometimes I just want that to spill over. How can we get it to, you know, now I have God's love inside of me and I'm feeling God's love inside of me. But the second commandment is that we're supposed to then love other people. And sometimes it's hard to love other people, right? It doesn't always feel easy. Sometimes maybe your brother or sister is just really annoying and it's very hard to feel love for them, right? Does that ever happen? That happened to me with my siblings. Sometimes maybe your mom or dad has made a rule that they say is best for you, but oh, it's frustrating because you just don't see it that way. Sometimes it feel, it's hard to feel love then in that moment. So what can we do 
to help us to feel the love of God come out of us and pass on to other people. Well, I think we should let the liquid in here represent prayer. Sometimes we need to take a minute and pray that God's love will overflow, that he will give us so much love that it will overflow out of us so that we can love other people. Sometimes they're easy to love and sometimes they're hard to love. So what do you think is going to happen when we add prayer to the mix of God's love in our life? Let's, you think it's going to, oh boy, that would be scary. I just made sure my goggles on. Okay, let's see. Happening. There wasn't enough liquid in there for it to overflow. The bottle wasn't totally full. Is God's love overflowing out of us to everybody around us? And if this can, and it just will keep going. And if we would add a little more prayer into there, it would keep going and going and spreading so that everyone around us can feel God's love through us. That's pretty cool, hey? Yeah, we, well, we can pretend that the spoon is somebody else that's feeling God's love. All right, so it's done bubbling over for now. You guys can kind of back up just a touch so that everyone can see. So that is my encouragement to you guys today. Sometimes we don't feel God's love. We know that it's there. Remember that he is, he died for us. He is our father and he will never leave us. And then... We can pray. Nope, off the steps. There's nothing interesting back there. We can pray and talk to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want your love to overflow. I'm having a hard time loving my brother or sister, my mom or dad, or one of my friends. But I know that you love me, and I want that love to go on to the people around me. And then, just like this mixture in the bottle here, it starts to overflow. Nope, we're going to get off the stairs. It starts to overflow to the people around us. So let's say a quick little prayer, and then you guys can go back to your parents. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for these kids that are here today to come to learn about you and just to be part of our church community. They are such an important part, and we thank you that they are here. I pray that as they go ahead in this next week, that they will remember this little lesson that they can always be filled up with your love, and that when we pray and we read the Bible and we believe what you tell us, we can pass that love on to other people. We can overflow with your love. Thank you for this beautiful day and help us to continue to learn as Pastor Jesse speaks to us today. Amen. Good morning. I'm going to open in prayer. God, I pray that as we uh, dig into your word, as we, uh, as we seek to find your voice, to find what you are calling us to uh, through the book of Philemon, that our hearts will be open to you, that, uh, that we will be ready and willing to be changed by the Holy Spirit, God, that we'll walk out of here 
uh, closer to you, closer to each other, um, and challenged and convicted in the ways in which um, we can and need to change our lives in order to look more Christ-like. In your name, amen. So that was a great uh, little experiment there that wasn't uh, arranged to tie into what I'm talking about today, but in a lot of ways I feel like what's going to happen now is I'm going to say the same thing, except I'm going to take longer and use larger words. Um, so if uh, you get bored of me, just remember that and you've basically got it covered. We are going to be jumping in to the book of uh, Philemon today, and and uh, it's a book that maybe doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, it's maybe overlooked a little bit. Maybe you didn't even know how to say Philemon. I'm still not 100% sure that I know how to say Philemon, but I think it is uh, Philemon. I almost just uh, decided to call it the book of Phil because that would have been easier, but, but we are going to talk about uh, Philemon. And, and over July, uh, I get to preach to you three times uh, this month. So this is the first time actually for me that I get to preach this often and this close together. So it was an opportunity to uh, do a bit of thinking about what I wanted to say over these next three weeks, about what we could maybe get into together. And I thought it would be fun to take a look at some of these short books in the Bible, some of these books that tend maybe to get a little bit overlooked, some of these books that tend to maybe slip by because they only take up a page or two. We don't think about them as much as we think about the Gospels or we think about Romans or some of these big, meaty theological books in the Bible, these little letters that exist I thought it would be interesting to get into a few of those. So that's what we're going to be doing uh, over the next uh, few weeks. Because I find these books, books like Philemon, uh, really fascinating. Uh, because they're in the Bible. And I'm really interested in, in how the Bible came together. Uh, I don't know if you ever think about this. The fact that the Bible had to be put together. Uh, and we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. It's his word to us, it's God-breathed, it's direct from him, uh, and it's infallible, and it's truth with a capital T. But the fact is, is that the Bible is also a human book. It has human authors, it was put together and organized uh, by humans. And so we can think of it, maybe it's a little, bit, uh, a little bit like Jesus, right? Jesus was fully God, and he was fully human. And so the Bible is like that too. At some point, a group of church leaders had to sit down in a room... And, and guided by the Holy Spirit, make the decision about what was in and what was out of the New Testament, what the New Testament was going to look like in terms of encapsulating or bringing together all these things about what it means to follow Jesus. And so when it comes to these really short books that feel a little bit almost like uh, these personal letters that could, that could almost be skipped over, it's an interesting question to ask, what was it about this letter that caught the eye of the people who were developing the New Testament canon. I think there maybe would have been a time in my life where I would have been scared to ask those sorts of questions. I felt like maybe that would be a disrespectful thing to approach the Bible with that kind of thinking. But the fact is, is that the more and more I read scripture, the more I love approaching the Bible with what I'm going to call prayerful curiosity. What is this doing here? Why did God place this here? What is this going to speak to me about? Why was this important to God in the creation of the Bible? And the Bible can stand up to those questions. When we approach with a curious mind and an open heart, the Bible can release things to us in very, very special ways through the Holy Spirit. And so that is sort of the spirit that I went into uh, the book of Philemon today, and, uh, or as I was preparing for this, and I was really, really rewarded by it. 
And I hope uh, that you were too. I, I sent out the, uh, the email kind of suggesting that you could read this book before uh, Sunday morning. I hope that you had the chance to. And I hope that you've already been rewarded uh, by what God has to say to us through this book. Um, it's a really unique book. Uh, unlike Paul's other New Testament write, uh, letters, mostly he wrote to churches or to big groups. This isn't written to a church. This is written to a specific person about a specific issue. And so it becomes kind of an interesting exercise to try and piece together the backstory here. As uh, Philemon, who the letter is written to, and then Onesimus, who the letter is about, they don't really get mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. So we get dropped into this relationship, we get dropped into this situation, and we get to do kind of a forensic dive into the letter to try and figure out who were these people and what made them tick. Um, and another unique thing about this letter, something that's interesting, is that although Paul does mention Jesus, Jesus comes up in the letter, uh, unlike his other books, he doesn't really dig into theology. He doesn't speak about the death or the resurrection of Christ. He doesn't speak about our relationship with God. He doesn't speak about the Holy Spirit. He doesn't speak about the tension between sin and our new lives, the tension between the old order between the brokenness of the world and a new creation. And these are the sorts of things that Paul loves to bring up in his letters. He speaks about these over and over again, but this letter is so short that he doesn't really get a chance to expand on those issues here. And yet, the more that I read this letter, and especially as I compare it to Colossians, uh, which was written around the same time, in fact, a lot of scholars would guess that these two letters were delivered to the Colossian church at the same time, one to the church and one directly to Philemon, especially as I compare it to the verses that Darren has encouraged us to memorize in Colossians 3, I've really, really become uh, captured by the ways in which these two things complement each other so beautifully and by how much depth of theology is underneath these words that Paul is saying. So what I'm going to do is read to you from Philemon. I encourage you to open up your Bibles and read with me. It's a bit of a tough book to find because it's so tiny, but it's between Titus uh, and Hebrews. If you're on your phone, it's easier. You just click Philemon. But this is what it says. I'm going to start in verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was so that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done anything wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. 
confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. So that's basically the letter. There's not a lot there, but there is enough to begin to dig into who these people were, the backstory here, and there are three main characters or main people that show up in this letter. So the first is Paul. And as you can see by my carefully constructed image, Paul is an older man at this point, and he's currently in prison. Although it's not mentioned which prison he was in, uh, it's likely that this was during his uh, final prison stay in Rome. So here Paul is in prison writing this letter uh, to this man named Philemon. We have no biblical record of Paul ever meeting Philemon in person. They may or may not have met. It's certainly possible. Uh, but obviously they knew enough of each other that Paul felt comfortable writing this personal letter and appealing to him in this direct way. So we have Paul and then we have Philemon. So this is the one that Paul writes to. And Philemon we know very little about. We can see here's a pretty snappy dresser. Um, by the way, the reason that I did this, that I gave you these little cartoons, is that I want you to be remembering and thinking through this entire sermon as we speak. These were real people. These were individuals with lives, just like you and me. I need to be careful not to go off on this tangent every five minutes, but what's really grabbed me about this letter is how cool it is to have this real, practical, actual example of our call to Jesus-formed living, lived out in a radical way. So we have Philemon. We don't know too much about this guy. We know he's a leader of the church in Colossae, and that church meets in his house, or a part of it does, and we can assume that this guy is at least reasonably well off, because first of all, he has a house that's large enough to host this group of Christians, and also, significant to the letter, he owns slaves. Something that implies that he was at least kind of upper middle class, if not higher. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that slavery thing. Because that's probably a question that's boiling in the back of your minds. How could Paul not just call out Philemon and say, what are you doing owning people? That's clearly against what God wants. Get rid of all your slaves. No one in church should own slaves. And that's a reasonable thing to think. It makes sense that we would think that way. But it's important to remember that slavery was a key part of the economic system of the day. It was deeply integrated into the way that life worked. Everyone had, uh, owned slaves. Everyone, at least at Philemon's level and higher in the economic world, owned slaves. And does that make it right? No, it doesn't. But maybe a good parallel is this. Today we have corporations, we have huge corporations that are known to do some very shady things in terms of how they treat their workers in third world countries. We have clothing manufacturers and we have software manufacturers who use and abuse and overwork their employees in unsafe working conditions for poor wages. And I'm going to pick on one. I'm going to pick on Nestle a little bit here. So the Nestle company has done some horrific, horrific things over the years in the name of profits. In the 70s, they partnered with hospitals in African countries, convincing mothers that the formula they had was better for their babies than breast milk, and they gave out free samples for just long enough for these women's natural milk supply to dry up, trapping these poorest of the poor women into having to pay for formula in order to keep their babies alive. As the world's largest producer of bottled water, they have argued on an international level that water should be privatized as much as possible, that it's not a human or a public right, 
and they've advocated for the definition of water, in fact, to be changed from the word right to need in order to relax international laws on how they can use groundwater and aquifers. And in some cases, there are reports that they have drained areas in third world countries of potable water, leaving people there with unusable water or poisoned wells. If you Google Nestle and human rights, you're gonna see article after article of allegations about child slave labor and their supply chain and various other issues that they have had through the years with government organizations. So what do we as Christians do with that? Do we shrug our shoulders and say, that's the way the world works, can't possibly change it. Do we boycott Nestle? It's a pretty complicated process as you can see by the chart up here. It's been done before. Back in the 70s, many churches boycotted Nestle over that formula scandal. Nestle apparently kept on going. And it's more than just formula and bottled water, as you can see on this chart. Nestle owns a huge share of the market on candy, on hygiene products like shampoo and makeup. They own a bunch of pet food manufacturers, several, several clothing retailers, and more. And it's not just Nestle. Do we stop buying Nike shoes if we know that they've used sweatshops in the past? Do we stop buying Apple products because their, because their supplier, Foxconn in China, recently had to install suicide nets around their building because overworked, depressed workers were jumping off. I think there's no question that we as Christians have a responsibility to think critically about how we're spending our money and that we should avoid, when possible, contributing to com companies with track records of human rights abuses. But what large multinational has a totally clean slate here? How do we go about making these decisions? I don't think anyone likes the fact that workers in Asia and Africa are being abused or underworked or underpaid in some circumstances. And here I stand in front of you with an iPhone in my pocket. So I guess it's not that simple. And in some ways, that's where Paul and his contemporary Christians were at with slavery. It's, it's a messy situation. But back to Philemon. He's a fairly wealthy church leader in Colossae who has a problem with this slave who's run off called Onesimus. Now what happened to lead Onesimus to running away? We don't know, it's not said in the letter, but we can speculate. Apparently Philemon found him to be basically useless, which is ironic because the name Onesimus literally means useful. So useful was useless. And he took off running. Maybe he stole something, Maybe he had done something or messed up in some way or wronged Philemon in his house or hurt somebody so badly that he needed to escape the punishment that was waiting for him. Whatever happened, he ran away. And as you can imagine, runaway slaves did not have great prospects. This is all taking place in the early first century. This is only a few generations after the great slave rebellion led by Spartacus. I don't know if anyone's seen that Kirk Douglas movie, Spartacus. I am Spartacus. No, it's like 60 years old by now or something, or 70. Good movie, though. Go see Spartacus if you want to. It's an interesting story, but there was a rebellion um, just before Jesus' time where thousands of slaves escaped and rebelled and tried to get their freedom, and they were eventually crushed and conquered by the Roman Empire, and the Romans were not interested in having this sort of thing happen again. And so punishments for runaway slaves or people who bucked the order of what they were supposed to be doing were incredibly severe. If you were caught, you were definitely going to be killed and you were probably going to be tortured first and you were probably going to be crucified. So Onesimus is in trouble and he's on the run 
and he bumps into Paul in prison in Rome. Why Paul? Was it divine intervention or providence? Did Onesimus specifically seek Paul out, having heard his name among the churchgoers in Colossae? Did he think Paul might have some sway with his former master? Did he think Paul could help him find cover or safety in Rome? We don't know why or how they met. We don't know any of that, but we do know they found each other. And that once Paul and Onesimus connected, a transformation occurred. Paul shared the good news of Jesus Christ with Onesimus, and Onesimus accepted. And their relationship grew to the point where Paul refers to Onesimus as his son, as his very heart. The word there is like gut, his very bowels, his very being, the very root of him. So we've got Paul authoring this letter to Philemon regarding Onesimus. And I want to take a look at Philemon and Onesimus to see what their journey or their choices or their situation can teach us about what it looks like today to live as Christians. I actually hoped, when I'd been preparing this, I'd hoped to look at all three of these people, Paul as well, couldn't figure out a way to fit it into a half an hour. So we're not going to look much further at Paul today, but I'm going to encourage you, if you want some homework or an idea for devotions this week, read through this chapter again sometime this week, just focusing on the strategies that Paul uses and, and maybe also the tools that he chooses not to use when it comes to mediating or dealing with conflict situations in the context of church relationships. There's so much powerful advice about the way that Paul chooses to approach this really, really tricky situation. Uh, but today what we're going to do is we're going to look at Philemon, and we're going to ask this question. We're going to say, how do we forgive in the kingdom? What does that look like? And then we're going to look at Onesimus, and we're going to ask the question, how does the kingdom or the king... Jesus, transform us. So we're going to start with Philemon. Looking at him, we're asking this question, how do we forgive in the kingdom? And Paul is making a huge request here. And it's worth noting that one of the other things that we don't actually know is how Philemon responded. We don't know. We don't have an answer to that question. The, the fact that the letter survived that he received it and kept it and it was distributed and it made its way into the New Testament is a pretty good indicator that he took Paul's advice. But when he received this letter, Philemon had a tough choice to make. Any other slave master would have had Onesimus killed because of what he had done. And in fact, there are several options that Onesimus would have had as a Christian slave owner that would have probably felt very Christ-like to him already. He could have forgotten and forgave the whole thing and said, get out of here, I never want to see you again. I release you from your debt. That would have already been almost absurdly merciful in that time. He could have taken Onesimus back as a slave with a stern reprimand. That would have also been incredibly kind and generous. But Paul asks him not only to forgive not only to take Onesimus back, but to do the unthinkable and to bring Onesimus, the one who shamed him publicly, the one who probably robbed him, the one who was useless to him, to bring him back into his house as an equal. Paul is pointing him towards that scripture in Colossians that we're memorizing together. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. 
Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. It's a wonderful piece of scripture to read on a Sunday morning, and it's a great idea that we would all behave in this way. But for Philemon, this has just jumped off the page, out of the sermon, and into his own messy life. This isn't just an idea anymore. He's being called to extend these things to someone that he probably considers as an enemy, to someone that he has every right to kill, to someone that he should hate, to someone who has hurt him and his family in the past. To live those words out requires stepping back, stepping away from actions or responses or words or deeds that you have every right to do. I, I want you to really, I want you to fully understand Philemon's situation here. By every rule book, by every judge, by any reasonable person, by any advice-giving friend, Philemon has an open and shut case. No one would have thought less of him. It would have been a fair and just choice for him to kill Onesimus for what he had done. This is not a good versus evil situation. It's important here that we get that Philemon should never have reasonably been expected to do this. But the miracle of the gospel and what we need to remind ourselves of every day, what we must wake up and intentionally clothe ourselves in every day is that thank God we have a Savior who is characterized by grace and forgiveness and most of all by love. And instead of justice, instead of what's fair, we put on radical love and forgiveness in the model of a God who forgave us. I want you to take a moment and do inventory of the relationships in your life and imagine what would it look like if we took this seriously. If we got called out like Philemon did, if we had a Paul in our lives calling out our broken relationships, how would we respond? And that's why I have really fallen in love with and been challenged by this book over the past week. This is a real-world example of sacrifice. This is an example of the work that comes with those nice words. The world tells us that we have a right to hold on to our bitterness and pain. We have a right to attack when we feel that we've been hurt. We have a right to fight fire with fire. And I ask you to read this chapter ahead of time and do some thinking about what this book had to say regarding Christianity, how we're called to live. And thank you for uh, your responses. I'd love to hear from more of you if you've pondered this or thought about this. Uh, but one of the texts that I got said that the message that they got from Philemon was that we follow a God who modeled forgiveness so completely for us, who himself is ultimate forgiveness, that forgiveness is no longer an option for us. It's not up for debate or dialogue. It is simply the way in which we live life in a response to a God who has forgiven us. Paul says that this is what being a Christian looks like, not in an abstract Sunday school way. Here it is in a real life situation. Paul says here in this place with this person, this is where it is lived out. Philemon might have read Colossians chapter 3 on a Sunday morning and thought, yeah, that's beautiful. But he's finding out in this moment that practicing it is tough. It takes intentional sacrifice, and it takes intentional work. It takes a willful giving up of what we feel we are owed, 
what is staring us right in the face on the balance sheet. We're called to give it up, to push it away, to walk into a new way of thinking. And if Philemon did, and if Paul did, and if Jesus did, then so should we. This isn't a fluffy idea that we talk about for an hour or two and move on from. This should change the way that we live our day-to-day lives. We should be handing out forgiveness and love and reconciliation to those who have wronged us that makes our neighbors look over at us and think they're crazy. There's something wrong with them. Don't they understand their rights here? Sometimes we think that in order to be a radical Christian, we need to sell everything. We need to move to another country. We need to run off to a monastery and take a vow of silence or something. You want to do something radical for God? You don't have to sell your house. You don't have to act like some Old Testament prophet. You don't even have to leave Rosenhort. Practice forgiveness and reconciliation with the people who have wronged you. Erase the debts, emotional, financial, whatever sort of debts of those who owe you of those that you have every right to hate or to litigate against or to badmouth or to be frustrated with? What if instead, not on the basis of your rights, not on the basis of your authority, not on the basis of what you're owed, but instead on the basis of love, acted like Paul is calling Philemon to act here? Can you imagine what that would be like? It's a powerful call. And it feels almost impossible to do. How could we be asked to do such a thing? Well, that's where a look at Onesimus comes in. The question we were going to ask with him is, how does the king of this kingdom, how does Jesus change or equip us to take up this cross, to take on this challenge, to bear this yoke of forgiveness? And in Onesimus, we see that it is possible because God is in the business of radical transformation of shaping hearts to look more like his. Before this letter, in his past, Onesimus was useless. Apparently, he wasn't even measuring up to the standard of being a slave. And then he did something on top of that, or took something, or hurt someone, and went on the run, the lowest of the low, with nowhere to go, no one in his corner, his life at risk. But then he meets Paul, and Paul tells him, about Jesus. Now he had undoubtedly heard about Jesus before. Serving in Philemon's house in this house church, he must have been exposed to this. But with Paul, through the Holy Spirit, something clicks that didn't click before. Something snaps in his heart and he accepts Jesus and he enters into a kingdom of neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. And he transforms from the lowest of the low to having a seat at the high table, equal to Paul, equal to Philemon, not because of anything he has done, but because of what Christ has done through him. And in that transformation, he moves from a useless slave to a useful partner, to someone that Paul considers a son, a co-worker, and a co-heir in Christ. This is a complete and total metamorphosis between what was before and what is now. You see, when we follow Christ, it needs to be more 
than just a verbal commitment. It is meant to be a transformative experience. It's about more than just transforming our personal things, our morning coffee times, or what we're doing on Sunday mornings, or where we're volunteering. This is about practical, real change that has impact on our relationships, that has impact on the way that we run business, that has impact on the way that we treat our time and our money, that has impact on the way that we think about the people who have wronged us or hurt us. Uh, Bruxy Cavey is a pastor at one of the largest, maybe the largest church in Canada. I get made fun of sometimes in the, in the pastor's office because I bring him up so much. I like him quite a lot. But, um, but I'm sometimes surprised that this church is as big as it is because he says some pretty uh, challenging things. And one of the things that he said, he set out this uh, thought experiment. He said this, imagine yourself if you weren't following Jesus. Are you basically the same person? then you aren't following Jesus. Is that too harsh? It certainly made me stop and think when I heard it. And to me, Paul is setting that same table for Philemon. He says, you say you're a Christ follower? Put your money where your mouth is. This is an opportunity to live out what you say is important to you. And again, I'm not talking about big, dramatic upheavals. I'm not talking about draining your savings account and giving it to charity or moving to Calcutta to be the next Mother Teresa. I'm talking about keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, getting dressed in compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and love and choosing to do small, difficult things every day, just simple choices but we have to be intentional about making them. When someone owes us money, when someone cuts us off in traffic, when someone breaks a promise, when someone lets us down, Paul reminds us, and Philemon's choice shows us, that forgiveness is not an option. It's our calling. And Jesus has paid for that sin. And we are all equals in Christ. Christ is all and is in all. And on the basis of love, let's walk forward together in this new way, in this new kingdom. Amen.